Well, good morning once again. And if you're visiting with us this morning, a very special and warm welcome. It's great to have you with us. Um, if you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, as I mentioned before in the children's talk, we're going to be doing a series um, throughout the book of Ephesians over the next six or seven weeks. And if you're a regular here with us, I'd really encourage you to take up the challenge. Just um, We're going to be doing it sort of Martin Lloyd-Jones style of one verse a week um, for the first 14 verses. Um, take up the challenge to try and memorise um, what God's Word says. Uh, it's a great discipline. Uh, we don't do it anywhere near as enough as we really should these days, but it's a really great practice to um, get into the habit of doing. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1 uh, through to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, what a great blessing it is to be able to meet together today as your people on this, the Lord's Day, the day when you resurrected from the dead and you broke the power of sin and death once and for all. Lord, how good it is to be able to rest from our labours, but also to rest from all human striving to try and save ourselves. 
Because as Paul will go on later to say in the book of Ephesians, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And even this is not from ourselves. Even faith is a gift from God. Lord, we thank you that you have offered to us such a great salvation that we hear about in your word of truth. And we pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us now through your word. Bless us, we pray. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells the story of Babette's Feast. You might have seen the movie, uh, which had the same name in the 1980s. It's a fictional story of this small, austere religious community um, or religious group in Denmark. It's located in a poor fishing village. And the village is so poor that the streets are all muddy uh, and their roofs are all thatched. And basically the whole place is falling apart. They're led by a very sombre man who is a pastor and he has two beautiful daughters. Sadly, they're never allowed to leave the village uh, because their father, who has been widowed, will not let them. And so they're rightly miserable. Everyone in the community wears black and have renounced every worldly pleasure, which has made them not only joyless, but loveless. For instance, one person is holding on to a grudge against another person due to some bad business dealing. There is all this gossip and innuendo about a 30-year-old sexual affair involving two members of their community. A pair of old ladies have not spoken to one another for over a decade. It's a really sad and tragic situation. Their fellowship is as bleak as the village in which they live. Their diet also matches the nature of their fellowship. And it consists of boiled cod and a gruel made from boiled bread in water fortified with a splash of ale. Into this depressing scene, though, comes a young and beautiful French woman named Babette, whose husband and son have tragically been killed in France's civil war. Even though she tells them that she's a trained and skilled cook, they only ever allow her to make very simple dishes because that, to be otherwise, to have taste would be pleasure and that would be worldly. You see, someone... uh, But then one day, everything changes because she wins, quite literally, the lottery. Every year, someone in her hometown would buy her a lottery ticket and uh, this, on this particular occasion, this year she won. And so she inherited this enormous amount of money. Rather than spending it all on herself, though, she asks the members of the religious community, would they allow her to cook them a proper French meal, of which they begrudgingly allow her? But because it might invoke pride in her or pleasure in them, they make an agreement with one another not to compliment her on anything she does. Now, as you can tell uh, from the title of the book, what she creates is this incredible feast. 
the best wines, the most beautiful meats, the most expensive cheeses, finished off with this most spectacular and exquisite dessert. But as they eat all of this extravagant food and drink, though, an incredible thing happens. And that is all of the barriers and the hurts that have built up between them over the years are broken down. They forgive each other and they start loving one another again. And their fellowship with one another is beautifully restored. However, what they don't realise is that Babette has spent the whole of her winnings on them. She gave everything she was given and in so doing also gave up any chance she herself might have of starting a new life. But by giving it all away, she renewed the whole community and even restored their faith in God. It's a great story, I think, about what the effect of an extravagant gift of grace can have. It's totally changed their hard hearts, and it can also melt sinful attitudes, can't it? But that's precisely what God has done for us through Jesus. He has poured out his love and mercy and forgiveness and grace upon us who are so totally undeserving. And the price of that gift is the infinite cost of his one and only son. It's all to be found in and through the person of Christ, who is mentioned repeatedly, isn't he, in the opening couple of verses of the book of Ephesians. Because Christ is where all of the riches of God's grace are to be found. He is like a treasure chest in which are located every spiritual blessing. Now, as we continue our series uh, in the book of Ephesians, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter. Um, We come this week to verse 3. And there are four things in particular to notice, just from verse 3. And they all revolve around the theme of God's blessing, and they're all intimately connected to one another. But it's this glorious truth of God's extravagant love and grace, though, which frees us from the ever-present religious danger of legalism, of being like the people in Babette's feast who lose their spiritual freedom and love and joy. Because we can so easily turn our attention on ourselves rather than looking to the Lord and what he's done for us, of both who he is and what he has done for us. And most of all, seeing in him just how loving and generous and merciful he is. Because how we view God, friends, will have a profound impact on how you and I relate to one another as well. The first point then, if you have your Bibles open, is of 
the nature of God himself. That because of who he is, God himself is rightly said to be blessed. It doesn't come across that clearly in English, but in the original language of the New Testament, verse 3 starts with Paul praising or literally blessing God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur makes the really insightful point that the essence of God's nature is goodness. The essence of God's nature is goodness. Nothing else in all creation can be described in this kind of way, in essence. For not only does God the Father do good things, but he is also good in a way and to a degree that no human being except, well, his own incarnate son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is or can be. Hence, John MacArthur goes on to say, nothing is more appropriate for God's people than to bless him for his great goodness. In all things, whether pain, struggle, trials, frustration, opposition or adversity, MacArthur says, we are to praise God because he is good in the midst of them all. God is good and he's good all the time. And for that, we praise him and we bless him. How often do we need to remind ourselves of and practice this particular spiritual truth. To orientate our hearts to heaven and to tune our hearts to praise. There's a wonderful freedom and I think joy to be experienced by us whenever we do. I mean, how many times have you come to church on a Sunday morning with a heart that is really, if you're to be quite frank, feeling empty and cold? But as you start to sing praises to God, your spirits lift and your heart is strangely warmed, isn't it? It's because our focus has lifted from ourselves to the one who loves us and cares for us and sustains us, who is himself perfect goodness. We fail to fully appreciate who he is, though, until we express our faith by blessing his name. So the first thing we need to do is to stop and to acknowledge how good God is. The second point flows on from this, and it's that the reason why we should bless God is because in his goodness, he blesses us. Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's one particular aspect which Paul mentions here, which I shouldn't overlook. And it's the blessing that he expresses to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that particular expression. In rightly affirming the deity of Jesus, though, 
How can he also say that the Father is Jesus' God? Significantly, this is something which the Lord Jesus himself explicitly states in John chapter 20. And hopefully most of you in your growth groups this week would have looked at this. Immediately after his resurrection, he reveals himself to Mary and she is obviously ecstatic that he is no longer dead. But then he says to her this, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Now, it's really great that this statement is recorded by Jesus, I think, specifically in John's gospel. In fact, none of the other Gospels have Jesus recorded as saying this particular statement. But more than any of the other Gospels, John's Gospel emphasises the divinity of Jesus. Right throughout the Gospel, you see it through the seven I am statements, but also from the very first verse. John famously says, In the beginning was the word, And the word was with God. And you all know the next part of the memory verse, don't you? And the word was God. There can be no doubt at all as who John thinks the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the word of God which has become flesh. The word which was with God in the very beginning but the word who was God from all eternity. How can Jesus then say that he is returning to his Father and to his God? Well, clearly this involves the doctrine of the Trinity and how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all relate to one another. Because in the Bible, the three persons are each represented in different parts as being God, and yet we know there is also only one God. As the word who has become flesh, here's the mystery. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. And it's absolutely appropriate for him to refer to the Father then as his God. Because he is the perfect human being. And that is precisely who the Father is to him. This is a really important point. So please turn over to Hebrews chapter 5 and I'll try to explain it even more fully. Hebrews 5, and I'm just going to read from verse 7 through to verse 9. Because unless Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had become a man and related to his Father as God, you and I could never have been saved. We could never have received the blessing of God's love and mercy and forgiveness. That's how important this is. Okay then, Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 7, we read, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from what he suffered and 
Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, once again, this might raise for you lots of questions. For instance, as the divine son of God, Jesus was always perfect, wasn't he, in the sense that he never sinned. Just like the Father, God the Son can truly be said to be good. In what sense then was he made perfect, as the writer of Hebrews says? Well, it's by fulfilling the law and living out a perfect life of righteousness on earth. You see, Jesus has to fulfill the conditions of being a perfect substitute. A lamb without blemish, so that he could be sacrificed to take away our sin. Jesus had to do what Israel never did or could. He had to fulfill the law of God perfectly. All the times when we ourselves break God's law, and by his perfect obedience, he has become for us the eternal source of salvation. Do you see? Through whom all of God the Father's spiritual blessings can now be poured out to us from heaven. Significantly, though, did you notice the place or the sphere in which this happens, though, is the heavenly realms. And this is something which is another really important theme in the book of Ephesians. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now, this phrase, the heavenly realms, is mentioned five times in total. First of all, we learn about here in verse 3. Then if you flip over to verse 20, you'll see Paul talks about Christ being seated um, in the heavenly realms right now. He has sat down because he's fulfilled perfectly the role of the great high priest. Then in verse 6 of chapter 2, where it talks about us also being seated with Christ now in the heavenly realms. Then in verse 10 in chapter 3, where he talks about God's wisdom being displayed through the church to the rulers and authorities where, once again, not on earth, but in the heavenly realms. Isn't that incredible? Right now, as we gather here on church, we might look like a motley crew to the world, but God is displaying his manifold wisdom to the heavenly realms. It's like God's looking from heaven. He's saying, look at that. Look at what I'm doing in reconciling people to myself and to one another. And then finally, in chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul talks about our battles being not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. Once again, not necessarily here on earth, although that is true, it has an outworking, but in the heavenly realms. The heavenly realms then are a reality which we should consider when viewing the nature of our existence here on earth. Because even though we can't see or perceive it, the Bible says there is a whole other spiritual dimension. 
There is an earthly realm in which we all inhabit, observe and see, but there is also a spiritual or heavenly realm which is just as real and just as pertinent. Just take a look, for instance, um, or take, for instance, the passage in 2 Samuel 5, which we heard from a little earlier. Before going into battle, again, David inquires of the Lord and he's told to go straight up. Sorry, he is told not to go straight up the second time, but to circle around them and attack them in front of the balsam or the mulberry trees. Then he's told this. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. And so David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the entire Philistine army. Now, there's a bit of conjecture as to what the sound of the marching here might be referring to. Maybe it's just the breeze in the tops of the trees, which sounds like marching, And so it's a sign that David is to wait for that breeze to blow. But the ancient Jewish commentators often acknowledge that it's referring to something more. That the sound of the marching was a reference to the Lord's heavenly host going out into battle before them. In other words, the war which was being waged on earth was a reflection of the battle which was also occurring in the heavenly realms. And so it was a case of David being mindful of that reality as well. Remember when, when God or Elijah prays to God that he would open his servant's eyes and he sees all around him the hills filled with chariots of fire? There are so many more that are for us, friends, than are against us. If the Lord would just give us eyes to see. In a similar kind of way, the point Paul is making in verse 3 is we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. For we are united with Christ by faith. And so everything which is his now belongs to us. All of which leads us to the fourth and final point, which is that the blessing is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. A number of years ago, uh, I heard a story which illustrates this particular point really well. I'm not sure this particular story happened, okay? So I'm going to put that caveat out there straight away. It would be amazing if it did, but it's a great illustration nonetheless. It's a story about a father and a son. And because um, the wife and mother had tragically died a number of years earlier, uh, they both grew up to be very close not just as father and son, but in the business that they were in. They shared a common passion, and that was art collecting. Indeed, as the story goes, they had one of the greatest private art collections in the world at the time. With the onset of World War I, though, the son volunteered for service, despite the earnest and desperate pleas of the father not to go. The son felt like it was his patriotic duty with many of the men of his generation, and he left. It was only a few months later, though, that the father received the dreaded news that his son had been killed in action. 
One day, a soldier appeared at his door. He was someone who himself was a budding artist, and he personally knew and had befriended the man's son. The unknown artist slash soldier gave the father what he thought a rather crude and basic portrait of the son, but he'd done it just before the son had died. It was something that the father treasured so much that he moved out all the other artworks and he put this particular painting in pride of place above his mantelpiece. It was not too long after this, though, that the father himself died, a, a pretty broken and dejected man. With no heirs, no other siblings or anything to inherit the estate, the entire thing had to be auctioned. And people from all over the globe came for it. It was of great interest because many of the works had not been seen in public for many, many years. To everyone's frustration and surprise, though, the first piece that was auctioned that day was the portrait of the man's son. The very last piece that he had acquired, but the one which obviously occupied a really special place in the father's heart. The only problem was... <laughs> No one in the crowd wanted to buy it, and so no one offered a bid. The artist was unknown. The brushwork lacked technical skill, so they thought. But according to the auctioneer, nothing else could be sold uh, until this particular painting was purchased. Such was the father's will, last will and testament. Again, the room was quiet. Finally, someone made an offer. It was something like, you know, a couple of pounds. He thought, well, at least I can recover the money off the frame, you know. Well, going once, the auctioneer said, yes, 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 everyone agreed. Let's just get on with it. Okay, the auctioneer said, I, but I have to remind you, the hammer falls, there can be no other bids. Yes, 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 we understand. Just hurry up so we can get to everything else. And so the auctioneer said, okay, then, going once, going twice, for a third and final time, sold. Everyone let out a cheer, think, great, now we're done. Let's move on with the proper auction. However, as you can imagine, the auctioneer stopped and he started to pack up his equipment and he said, well, thank you, everyone, for coming today. Um, uh, that will be the end. And everybody said, wait, 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 wait. You, what, are you, what are you saying? You advertise everything in the father's and the son's estate was going to be sold today. And he says, oh, it was. You see, in the father's last will and testament, he specifically said that whoever purchased the son got it all. Now, I don't know if that's a true story. It'd be amazing if it was, wouldn't it? But that's the truth which illustrates the very heart of the book of Ephesians and the gospel itself. Whoever gets Jesus gets it all. Such is the father's will. And that is, if you purchase the Son of God by faith, you simply receive every spiritual blessing that belongs to the Father. Love, mercy, forgiveness, justification, righteousness. Paul says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. 
Isn't that mind-blowing? Isn't that just incredible? I can't get my mind around that. As soon as you and I come to saving faith in Jesus, everything that belongs to God is ours. It's just like what happens normally, isn't it, with an inheritance? Everything that once belonged to someone else, all of the things that they had worked for and accumulated over their lives is yours. And you yourself do nothing to receive it. It's all dependent on someone tragically dying. And that's exactly what has happened for us spiritually, friends, in Jesus. The Lord Jesus has died upon the cross, is resurrected from the dead, yes, but as a result of his death, everything that once belonged to him has been transferred to us. In just a little while, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's a timeless, I think, reminder of this particular truth because those elements point to an even greater feast. (laughs) Those elements are like the purchase of a small and simple portrait of the man's son, which points to all of the riches of of the artwork that is priceless. And it's all ours as we come empty-handed and receive it by faith. We receive God's mercy, his forgiveness because of the perfect life, death and resurrection of his one and only son. And the free gift of this divine love It should totally transform us from the inside out. Humbling our pride, because we can do nothing to to earn this. Softening our hardness, because we see how deeply we're loved. And strengthening our assurance, because God did this for us while we were still sinners. Because we know, friends, we know that we're loved and accepted. We know that everything that is God's is ours by faith in his Son. Let's turn to God in prayer, praising him for both who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we bless you and we praise you for who you are and what you have done. So great is your love for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have some deeper understanding, not just in our minds, Lord, but in our experiences, in our heart, as to how loved we are in Christ. How all the riches of heaven belong to us through faith. Lord, as we come and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a moment, oh, we pray, Father, that we might know how much we are loved. How rich is the mercy and the generosity that you lavish on us through Jesus. Lord, the world can't see this because it's not discerned by just human understanding. We need to see this by your spirit. We need to see the heavenly realms for the reality and the truth that they are. So we pray that by your 
Holy Spirit, we might see this, that we might grasp this. Thank you, Lord, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, let's stand and let's praise God before we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's sing.